In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the Lord our God says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? The Lord has no pleasure, he says, in the death of the wicked. In his grace and mercy, he comes with warnings such as Ezekiel 33 and the one we find in our passage. He comes to sinners of all stripes and sizes, to young and old, to great and small, to Jew and Gentile, to rich and poor, educated and uneducated, to sailors and kings. With the message that unless you repent, you you will likewise perish. A message that he finds no pleasure in your death. That the wicked Sinners turn from her ways of wickedness and live. Now, for many of you, you know, you know the work of the Lord in your heart, having turned to Him. But there are still there are still many in our midst who do not know the Lord, who are going on into life, into an unknown future, a tomorrow that you are not certain of, separated from your God. And tonight, this message in particular, for young and old, for those who do not know the Lord yet, a message that comes to you to take heed Jonah, Jonah needed to learn a lot. He needed to learn that his God was a God who delighted in showing mercy. His God was not a God who was a respecter of persons. He was a God who delighted to seek and to save the lost. He was a God who's, for, for whose salvation is of the Lord, Jonah says in Jonah 2 even for disobedient and rebellious servants. Jonah needed to learn that his God used even the feeblest of means to proclaim his will into the hearts and lives of the least deserving. And this evening we hope to consider how the Lord demonstrates his long-suffering kindness, his patience, not only towards the city of Nineveh, but to us tonight. How he will have his word proclaimed and brought to bear on the lives of sinners. 
and where he will once again tonight demonstrate that he is merciful and that he delights in showing his great mercy towards the greatest of sinners. That he will cause his glorious gospel to be proclaimed here, but throughout the world. That he will, through that mercy, draw sinners to himself in repentance and faith. And that it is because of his mercy that he can demonstrate pity, relenting grace, as it were, towards judgment, hell-bound sinners. So tonight we hope to consider the following theme. God's mercy for great sinners. A mercy that propels the proclamation. A mercy that produces penitence in the hearts and lives of sinners. And a mercy that proclaims the pity of the Lord on sinners. Last week we left Jonah on the dry ground, having just been vomited out on to the dry land from the belly of that great fish. He had just been delivered by the Lord from what seemed certain death and destruction. And one wonders what was going through the mind of Jonah as he lay there on that beach. No doubt a miserable and smelly sight. Alive. Was it really true? Was he really alive? Had he finally come out, as he describes, from the belly of hell? Had the Lord truly answered his prayer? And yet, as as that realization of his deliverance sunk in, that he he was there laying on that beach, he no doubt began to recall to mind all that has taken place in the, the days prior to this. How he had run from the Lord to Jonah, or to, to head to Joppa, to Tarshish. How he had been caught in that storm and singled out. How he had been thrown overboard. How he had been, as he sunk into the depths of the water, had been swallowed up by that great fish. How he had cried from the belly of that fish and in an ag- agonizing prayer, how he had remembered the word of the Lord. And as he prayed from the belly of the fish, he had made vows to the Lord. He remembered his commitment, no doubt, that he would sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving, that he would pay those vows that he had made. And as he reflected on this deliverance, maybe he wondered what was, what was next? What would the Lord, how would the Lord use him? Would he use a failed servant again? 
But maybe, maybe there are those among the people of God here tonight, you failed on occasion again and again, and you wonder, how, how will the Lord use you? Will the Lord use you? Why would the Lord use such a sinner like yourself? And the wonder, the wonder is that the Lord does use even unfaithful people, his unfaithful people, to accomplish his purposes. We don't know how long it was between the time Jonah was vomited out onto dry land to when chapter 3 begins. I think it's very, there's a close proximity. We're not told. But nonetheless, verse 1, the words of the Lord did come to Jonah, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, what a, what a marvelous reality. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Again, the Lord, despite our unfaithfulness, continues to come to us again and again and again, calling us to serve him, to love him, to live for him. And if you failed as a child, as a child of the Lord, let this be an encouragement to keep coming back to him, confessing your sins, repenting of them, committing yourself as Jonah did in the belly of the fish to serve him and love him and live for him. And the Lord came back to Jonah as well and called him again to the same task. The Lord had not changed. There was still a message that needed to go to Nineveh to that great city. It was a message that would be proclaimed. And nothing, none of the failures of the people of God can hinder that message from going forth. And the Lord would use even his prepared servant. The Lord wasn't done with Jonah. He still had work for Jonah to do. This is so unlike us as human beings. Parents, maybe you have a teenage son or daughter, and you're trying to encourage them to, to develop trust. You give them more responsibilities, um, and maybe they, they failed. And the tendency can be on our parts is to, to not trust them. So you need to build up that trust again before we'll let you do this or that. Or maybe as an employer, you have, a, you have an employee who, who's done something, and you then put them on a probationary period, um, seeking to see if they're going to be a good fit for the, the business. The Lord doesn't do that with his people. Jonah had broken trust with the Lord. He had deliberately and intentionally disobeyed his God, but he didn't, the Lord didn't put him on probation, but he restored him to full service. Go to Nineveh. The Lord's deliverance is complete, it's full, and he not only forgives, but in restoring his people to service, he restores one equipped and ready 
for that future service. Actually better equipped to take up the staff. For the Lord has a way of taking all of even our sins and our, and our, and our misdoings and turning them for good, as Paul says in Romans 8. All things work together for the good to them that love God, to them that are, who are called according to his purpose. And for Jonah, this included his disobedience. The Lord was taking his disobedience, his time in the belly, his affliction, and turning it for Jonah's good so that Jonah would be this most suitable and prepared servant that would go to the city of Nineveh. He was to be the, the man of God that would go there with the message of God. For Jonah now knew what it was to experience the forgiving mercy of God for one who was absolutely unworthy. Jonah had come to know what it was to experience answered prayer when he didn't deserve an answer. Jonah had come to experience tremendous blessing in the midst of tremendous need. He was prepared. He was prepared for future service. And now the Lord sends Jonah the second time. Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid you. Jonah was not only propelled forward as the prepared servant, but he was sent with a prepared message. Jonah was not going to go with his own message, but he was going to go with the word of his God. And this message was an urgent message. It needed to go. Arise, go. Jonah had to go. God is determined that his word would reach the people of Nineveh, for he had soul work, heart work to accomplish among this Gentile people. The city was great. Its wickedness was rising up in the sight of the Lord. And they were a people who needed to hear the gospel. And how would Jonah respond? Children, you will remember just a, a short two chapters ago, Jonah heard those same words. And we read in the beginning of chapter 1, in response, Jonah arose up to flee unto Tarshish. And so as we begin reading in verse 3, there's a lot of similarities. Jonah arose, but he didn't flee. Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In obedience, Jonah gets up and goes to that Gentile city to bring the word of the living God. Despite all the obstacles that no doubt clouded his mind that were, were in front of him, either in his mind or in physical obstacles, he's compelled to go because of the great mercy of his God. But not only is the message urgent, the message is certain. The Lord says, 
and preach or proclaim the message that I bid thee. Jonah is not going with his own message, but he's going with the message of the living God, his God. And brothers in the ministry among us, this is an essential reminder to us and to our ministries that we, we do not and we cannot bring our own word, but we bring the living word of God. And so keep close to the scriptures. A congregation that speaks to a need for you as well. Like the Bereans, you need to be people of the Word of God, to be searching the Scriptures to see if what's proclaimed from this pulpit is according to the Scriptures, that conform to the very words of God, to see if these things are so. And so we're called to be diligent students of the, the Word of God, so Jonah goes. He goes with a, a, an urgent message. He goes with a certain message. And he takes up his journey to the city of Nineveh. A great city, we're told. Some suggest that when, when it references the, the size of the city, so now Nineveh was exceeding great city of three days' journey. Some reference this as the, the width, the time it took to cross from one side of the city to the other in terms of the diameter of the city. Others suggest that this is a, the time that Jonah spent walking, proclaiming the word of God across this great city. It's uncertain. But the point, the point that Jonah makes is that this city was large, was very great. It was home to at least 120,000 people. It was the capital of the country of Assyria, the nation of Assyria. It was a country and a city that were enemies of Israel. And now here's Jonah going to this large city, to his national, the enemies of his people. And he's coming, he's coming with a message of destruction. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No, no doubt Jonah, as he's making his way to Nineveh, must have had some questions, had fears, trepidation. Here's Jonah, a Jew, going to a foreign city declaring its destruction and judgment and not just of one of the cities but the capital city and he's doing it within the city itself in some ways it may be like an American or an Israeli going into Tehran in Iran and declaring a message of judgment against that city. From a human standpoint, one would not expect this message to be well received. You would, you would hardly think you would get through one day 
of crossing that city. But compelled by the command of his Lord, with the gravity of the message, the weight of the lost souls of Nineveh, Jonah goes and Jonah preaches. And walking through that city, stopping at various points, he calls out the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One commentator says, lost like a needle in a haystack inside this gigantic vanity fair, the Sodom of a city, the tiny figure of Jonah feels he can go no further. And so he stops and he shouts out the terse message with which he has been entrusted. We too come tonight with a message from the Lord from this portion of Scripture. A message that we have been called to proclaim. And we recognize that by nature we proclaim, or we are, we are proclaiming it to a people by nature who don't want to hear the Word of God. And some of you, some of you have ignored the message for years and continued on in your unbelief. And the message comes once more. Except you repent, you will likewise perish. Jonah's message is short. It's to the point. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the original, it's five words. Five words. Whether, whether this was the entirety of Jonah's message or a summary, doesn't really matter, but the content is certain and true. And on the surface, the message is a message of destruction. Nineveh's days are numbered. Nineveh shall be overthrown. Destruction is coming. It's inevitable. And this word for overthrown is a word that's used in various ways in the Scripture, but three primary ways. And one of the ways that it's used, and we find it being used this way in the, as, as the Lord comes to Abram, describing the destruction that's going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says, Sodom and Gomorrah will be overthrown. And then we read of that destruction, and we read that they were, we read Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. This is a word that describes how God's anger and wrath upon unrepentant sin, if it's continued in, will lead to catastrophic destruction, annihilation. Judgment came, overthrow came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And for Sodom and Gomorrah, there was, it came without warning. It was complete and, and thorough. Yes, Lot lived in the midst of it. Righteous Lot lived. He was a a living testimony, a poor one at that. But Sodom and Gomorrah's 
was overthrown, completely destroyed. But in our passage, Nineveh, this great city, is warned of coming catastrophic destruction. And this evening, we too are reminded. We are reminded that if we continue to persist in unrepented sin, we have God's wrath already abiding on us. And friends, it's only a matter of time and destruction will come. Nineveh was given a time frame, 40 days. And we're not told how long we have. We're not told we have 40 days yet. We may have 40. We may have 10. We may have 30 years yet. But the scriptures come to us and say, today, today is the day of salvation. Today we need to make haste for our life's for we don't know if we have tomorrow. And friend, when you're apart from Christ, you are in a, an incredibly precarious place. Jesus tells us in John 3 that his Father's wrath is abiding on you already. Now, in our lives like a vapor, we hear one moment and gone the next. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But as this message of destruction comes, It is also a message of hope. The very fact that Nineveh received this warning message speaks speaks to the hope that existed. Sodom and Gomorrah received no warning. One day they were going about their regular activities, and the next the Almighty God poured out his wrath and justice on the city. Nineveh received a a warning of pending doom. And in receiving the warning, she was afforded time, a time of grace, yet 40 days. Why, Why this time? Why this time frame that came to Nineveh? Why the 40 days? So they would turn, turn from their sin, their wickedness, so that they would humble themselves before the Lord, so that they would call out to the Lord. They would take him at his word and believe so that they too could find mercy and grace from a God who is slow to anger, who is long-suffering, who is compassionate, even towards rebellious Gentile sinners. And once more, the Lord comes to us tonight with his message of warning. And yes, it's a warning message, but yet in that warning, there's hope being proclaimed 
calling you to turn from sin, but in turning from sin, he called, the Lord calls you to turn to him who is able to forgive you, the greatest of sinners. Not only does God's mercy propel a message to the city of Nineveh, to us tonight, but it's the Lord who produces repentance and faith in the hearts and lives of sinners. As Jonah proclaimed the word of God with boldness, with clarity to the people, the message, the message not only reached their ears, like, it, like this message is reaching your ears tonight, but the Lord brought the message home to the hearts. And we, te- we too need the Spirit of God to be taking this word, His word, home to your hearts and your lives, to your minds. And the Lord did bring it home to the hearts and lives of sinners in Nineveh. And we read in verse 5, And so the people of Nineveh believed. They trusted they, they took God at his word. They believed the message that was being presented by the prophet. This believing can only be attributed to God alone. He's the one who begins that work in the heart and life of a sinner like, like yourself. And he's the one who will bring it to, to completion, to perfection. This believing had nothing to do with this, the people of Nineveh, had nothing to do with Jonah and his, his delivery of the message, as we'll see, was tainted with um, doubt and wrong motives even still. This message had nothing to do with the way it was presented, but it had everything to do with who gave the message, with the one who sent Jonah, had everything to do with the Lord. They believed God. But not only does Jonah record for us that they believed, he also documents for us what this belief looked like in the lives of the people of Nineveh. And by extension, what, it ought, what it's going to look like in our lives when the Lord begins to work in our hearts, when we too believe on him. They repented, Jonah says. This repentance was prompted by faith, which is a gift of God, we know from Ephesians 2. And in repenting, they believed that they were deserving of death and destruction. They did not argue with the Lord, suggesting that what was the coming punishment was unfair, that they didn't deserve it, that they weren't, not, they weren't that bad. No, by faith they accept God's sentence of judgment on them. And they demonstrate this. They demonstrate that with this with their, their works, but also their words. Now, before we go further, what, what is repentance? What is true repentance? 
What does biblical repentance look like? Well, children, the idea behind repentance is the idea of turning from heading in one direction to heading in another direction. Turning from living our own selfish lives, going our own way in one direction, away from the Lord, to having the Lord do a 180, 180 degrees in our life, where we now live for the Lord, do the Lord's work, desire to live for Him. It's a work that God initiates by His gracious mercy. By nature, you and I are running from the Lord, doing our own thing, loving it, living in, in the, the pleasures of this world, in, in our own, um, what we like, when we want to do it, we, that drives our life. But when God changes, when God begins, we put off that old way and we run towards Him, delighting in what He delights in, loving what He loves, hating what he hates. We humble ourselves before him. And this is what we find among the people of Nineveh. And not only do we find it in one or two or three here, but we see it happening on a wide scale. Revival. Revival sweeps across this city. From the greatest to the least, we're told in verse 5, including the king. And their, their repentance is evident in their actions and their words. We read that they, they turned to fasting and mourning. They humbled themselves before the Lord. These, these acts of fasting and mourning are, are outward gestures that we find throughout the Old Testament of of as the signs of true repentance, as they lay themselves bare before the Lord, they recognize that they are nothing before God. And as they lay themselves bare before Him, they stand exposed. They, ex they demonstrate that they've been found out and that there's nothing that they can do to present themselves acceptable to the Lord. The king himself comes down off his throne. He removes his outer garments of royalty, sets them aside, puts on sackcloth, and humbles himself, sitting in the dust and ashes. And friends, although we don't demonstrate per se, these outward signs as, a, as a, a demonstration of our repentance, what will be true, we will humble ourselves before the Lord. And we will mourn over our sin. We will stand before the Lord, uncovered, exposed, saying, yes, Lord, what you've said about me is true. I am worthy of death and destruction. I have sinned against thee. I am not deserving of the least of thy blessings. But it will be more than just an outward turning, a humbling of oneself, but there will be words, as Jonah describes, 
we will return to God in humble prayer and confession. And then the Ninevites, as they humble themselves, they also cry out to the Lord. We read they cried mightily unto God. And calling out to God, they do two things. They acknowledge their sins. They, they acknowledge their sins of just, they've lived their entire lives in a way that was evil. Their entire life they see as steeped in sin. There wasn't an aspect of their life that was good. But they also acknowledge that there were specific, particular violence that had come from their hands. And so they confess specific sins before the Lord as well. But they also, in confessing their sins, they also acknowledge their only hope. They turn to, to, the, to the Lord and they cast themselves on His glorious sovereignty. And they pray in verse, in verse 9, who can tell? Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell? They confess that they are undeserving of mercy, and yet they commit themselves wholly to his sovereignty, his power, his character. They commit themselves into his hand. They come to the one who had come to them with a, a message of their destruction, knowing that he, he is the one only who could bring salvation. They cast themselves on the Lord. And this is what we need to do as well. We need to humble ourselves, confessing our sins, our, our sins in terms of our sin nature, but specific sins in our lives to the Lord. And then cast ourselves on the Lord, falling upon him, knowing that he does all things well. And praying with the Ninevites, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Dear unbelieving friend, you need to stop resting in your own abilities, in your own supposed righteousness, in your, your, own, in your upbringing. You cannot rest in your church membership, or your baptism, in your godly parents, in your Christian education but you need to cast yourself on the Lord. And with Esther, cry, if I perish, I perish. We cast ourselves on the one who alone can save you, on the one who alone has, has procured and proclaims pity for undeserving sinners like we are. But we'll consider that in our third thought, but we will sing first from Psalter 140. Psalter 140.
For many of us, as we come to the book of Jonah, we, we read it, and we know, having read it so many times or heard the story so many times, know the end, even before we, we get there. We know that God will repent from the evil that he had said he would bring on the city of Nineveh. But you need to place yourself in the citizens of Nineveh's shoes for a moment. They had just finished praying, verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent? Would they perish? Or would they... Would their repentance lead to the changing of God's justice, just judgment against them? We're not sure when they received the word that they had been spared, that they would be spared. We don't read of Jonah bringing that message from the Lord. We don't know if they waited the 40 days I don't think so, because in, verse, in chapter 4, in the first five verses, we're, we're told that Jonah was displeased with the Lord, that the Lord had showed mercy on them, had repented of the evil. And Jonah, still desiring for that judgment to come, went and sat, we read in in verse, in verse 5, that Jonah had went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. So this is in chapter 4. And there met him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. It's like Jonah didn't believe that the city would not be destroyed. The Lord had come to the city with a message of judgment. But he had shown he showed mercy and pity. How the news of God's pity towards Nineveh had come to them, we don't know. But what we do know is he showed mercy and pity on this city. Verse 10 tells us, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them and he did it not. God saw their repentance. He saw their turning from their sin and turning to him. He saw them casting themselves upon his sovereignty, his being, his character. He saw the humility of their heart and their resting in his sovereignty. Now, it wasn't their repentance that saved them or brought the mercy of the Lord upon them. Because the Lord also saw what the Ninevites could not see, at least with the physical eye, that they were ones that the Lord had chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world. That they were ones that the Lord had given to his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Christ would redeem with his own blood. 
He saw that these were ones that Jesus would die for. And from God's perspective, outside of time and eternity, were ones that Jesus had died for. Had his hands pierced, his feet nailed to the cross. And we read that the Lord, seeing their works, their repentance, accepts it and turns from his way of judgment on the city. He repents, we read. This in no way suggests that God changes. But it describes how the Lord's actions are perceived by human beings as the Lord reveals himself so often through how we think. God had come to the Ninevites with a message announcing his coming judgment. But in response to their confession of sin, to their turning from sin and humbling themselves, the Lord repents or relents or another way of saying he showed pity on the city of Nineveh, on the citizens of Nineveh. It's not that the Lord overlooked the sins of the Ninevites. He cannot, and he will not. Their sins still needed to be dealt with and addressed, and they were dealt with and addressed on the cross. As he poured out his wrath and judgment on his beloved son, Jesus bore the sins of the Ninevites, and he bore the wrath of his father against their sins, and he bore the wrath of God of his father against the sins of all his people. Not only did Jesus bear the wrath of God against the sins of the Ninevites, against the sins of all his people, but he, he gave to them his perfect righteousness. He imputed to them what they could not do in terms of living a, a righteous life. It is only because of Jesus that there was hope, that there was pity that could be shown to the Ninevites. And it is only because of Jesus that his mercy can come and rest on you tonight. Friends, what was true of the Ninevites can be true for each and every one of us here this evening. By nature, we, we have had or still have the wrath of God abiding on us. But God has come in his mercy tonight once again with a word of, of warning, but yet a word of hope. Yes, explained through weak vessels like, like ourselves, like myself. A word that comes that describes our dreadful condition, but yet the only way of hope. And the question that we're left with as we've considered this passage is how will we respond? How will we respond to God's messages of, a message of warning and yet at the same time a message of hope? Will you persist in disobedience 
sin and rebellion? Will you, as the Apostle Paul describes, continue to suppress the truth? Will you in your pride seek another way out? There are some here who have, who have been born and raised in this church family, church community. You've been here for, some of you, many years. You've heard the gospel proclaimed faithfully from year to year. And yet you haven't bent the knee to King Jesus yet. You haven't cast yourself upon him, resting in him. The Ninevites, after hearing the message once, repented and believed. How many times does the Lord have to come to you and proclaim his gospel? How long will you persist? He calls you, you, boys and girls, children. He calls you grandparents, parents. He calls you from the least to the greatest, from every social status, economic status among us. He calls you who are weak and frail in body and mind, and he calls you who are healthy and strong in the vigor of your life. He calls one and all to turn to him. He calls us to humble ourselves before him, recognizing that we, like the Ninevites, deserve the just judgment of God to come upon us. He calls us to set aside our own righteousness and to humble ourselves, mourning our sins, confessing them before the Lord. He calls us to cast ourselves on his sovereignty, on his mercy. Who can tell? Who can tell if God will turn and repent who will show pity and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell if God will look favorably on you as a sinner for Jesus Christ's sake that we perish not? Friend, the Lord has never once turned away one who has come to him. You won't be the first. Come to him today like the Ninevites. It may be said of you after hearing this message, and you believed God. Maybe you have believed God, and we praise the Lord for that, and we give him all the glory and the honor. But may you now be as ones who have been Bought, who bought with a price. May you give yourselves as willing servants 
to serve the Lord, to go where he sends you, to be like a Jonah who is prepared by this God to serve him. Oh yes, we might fail, we will fail, but to get up and go again, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to other poor and needy sinners. Amen. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we pray that tonight that thou wouldst repent, relent, show pity on many sinners here tonight. We pray that there would be many who would turn from ways of sin and belief, mourning their sins, confessing them, humbling themselves before the Lord and casting themselves upon the one true God. And Lord, show mercy, we pray. Lord, we pray that sinners would not be able to leave this message, but would humble themselves and repent and believe. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.